Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. A few days ago in Salt Lake City, I sat down with DPS Skis founder Stefan Drake. Stefan is a soft-spoken guy, but his innovations and approach to ski design have had a significant impact on the industry. And as you'll hear at the end of our conversation, Stefan is hoping to change the game all over again, this time in the world of ski boots. Today, almost every single ski in existence incorporates rocker, and Stefan produced the first quote-unquote rockered ski in existence. He was also one of the first ski designers to really incorporate carbon fiber, which, as you all know, is now omnipresent in the ski world. Of course, another prominent trend these days in the industry is an emphasis on low weight, and that too is something that DPS has been focused on since their beginning. So yeah, if today, lightweight, rockered, carbon fiber skis are everywhere, well, DPS was one of the first to be doing all three of those things over a decade ago. Another really interesting component of this conversation, I was kind of expecting to have a big fight with Stefan on a couple key points of ski design, especially in the area of tip taper and the combination of low weight plus a stiff flex pattern. But that part of the conversation didn't go quite as I expected, and I think you'll find it to be quite interesting. Finally, and perhaps most remarkably, Stefan and I do get to talking about the DPS ski boot that Stefan has been working on for several years now. In short, this concept would basically turn the past 50 years of ski boot design on its head, and if it works, the term game-changing would once again be relevant, and it would almost be putting it mildly. Before we get to my conversation with Stefan, I wanted to remind you that we're going to be back at Mount Bachelor the last week of April, and we'd love to make a few turns or grab a beer with you while we're there, especially on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, April 28-30. to It's always a good time at Mount Bachelor, and we hope you can come join us. And now, without further ado, my conversation with DPS Skis founder, Stefan Drake. So, I'm sitting here on a Thursday evening in the Sugar House area of Salt Lake City with Stefan Drake, founder of DPS. Before we start getting into this, I want to kind of back up for a minute to before DPS was a thing. And um, in case people don't know your background, uh, let's go like very far back. Um, So to start, where did you grow up? Um, Yeah, so I I grew up in New York City, which is kind of ironic for like a really, yeah, just passionate skier, I guess. Well, I mean, there's plenty of passionate skiers that grew up in New York, but to have it become your your whole life there's there's a i guess small crew that i've met over the years that have come from new york but i you know in a way i think growing up in new york um i had this connection to the mountains via my grandfather who lived in colorado and and uh in a way growing up in the in the big city like once you had that mountain bug which i had at a really young age like it actually just kind of bruise it and festers it because you know my whole childhood I'm I'm in this very concrete land just pretty much 100% of the time dreaming of a life in the mountains and riding mountains and you know just smelling pine trees and snow and earth and stuff like that so 
um, yeah, so, you know, versus a lot of my good friends who grew up in Western ski towns, you know, it's like, there almost seems to be this kind of reverse deal where a lot of them end up in an urban lifestyle later in life. And, and, you know, to some extent, the like passion of your childhood, I feel like, you know, in a lot of cases goes to what you didn't have when when you were a kid. So, yeah. So I, I grew up in New York city Mm -hmm. in a, in the eighties and in a different time in that city than it is now. Yeah. What were you into as a kid? Were you, was it team sports? Was it skateboarding? Was it books and art? What, what were you about? Um, I'd say kind of all, all of the above really, you know, I, um, I mean, I think physical activities were, were definitely like, I mean, like a lot of kids, that was really my, my passion, you know, and, you know, I loved, you know, I threw a football around every day after school pretty much with friends and just, yeah, I loved any kind of sport, but even at a, a young age, um, yeah, I caught this bug for skiing just, you know, for six, I started when I was two going out to Aspen Highlands when it was this funky, independent, you know, crazy resort hmm. in the late seventies and early 1980s. And, and, uh, even at that really young age, I kind of got a sense of what ski culture was about. And just looking back on it, I think even at a pretty young age, I like, like that was a full obsession. You know, I was obsessed with skiing and sliding down mountains even at that early age. So yeah, you know, whatever I played video games, I read a lot of books. I, I, you know, like any kid growing up in New York, you go to a lot of museums and play every sport, but, um, yeah, somewhere in my heart, even super young, I was, Hmm. I knew I wanted to be a skier. When did you finally start getting a lot of days in, you know, per season skiing? Um, for me that happened, I would say kind of like probably around 13, 14, I knew that, you know, up till that point I was, I was obsessed with it. There was this ski instructor, um, guy in, uh, at Aspen Highlands that kind of, he had both a mix of local Aspen kids and then a bunch of kids that would like come in for spring break with their family. And, you know, at like 12, 13, um, just spending like two weeks a year with him. I, you know, I'd, I'd already been like fully converted and was like plotting and scheming ways to get into the mountains. And so the first phase of that was actually convincing my parents to, um, send me out to these like, uh, yeah, summer camps at Mount Hood. So I started training, uh, mogul skiing basically, uh, around, I think 13 going to like a couple of week sessions and but so it was kind of like four or five weeks a year but I was starting to train with like you know some world champions mm-hmm. and gold medalists and guys who were really just at the top of the sport at that age so got got like a good really good technical background pretty early on um, luckily and then I'd say when the real days started piling on was I at 17 or so I got a you know just trying to manage school and living on the east coast I <clears throat> was able to get this job uh, you know, like kind of classic 
just ski a lot job uh, working at a restaurant down in Las Lenas, Argentina, mm-hmm. in the summer in between my kind of junior year or after my junior year of high school. And uh, yeah, peeled potatoes, made desserts, washed dishes, and skied every day. So at that point, um, I started to like really started to rack up some some real days. Hmm. Yeah, seventeen in Las Lenas. Yeah, I was like the. People say down there, I was like the first real gringo ski mom, and yeah, nobody spoke English, and it was a wild adventure. I cried pretty much, you know, the first couple weeks. I was just totally lost. How how in the world back then? I mean, was Las Lanias even a thing? Yeah, yeah, it was like a full resort, and it was developed by this eccentric guy. I'm gonna, I forget his last name exactly, Tito. I think it was Lowenstein or something like this uh, in the early 80s. So by the time I showed up, it was kind of 93, 94 okay. or something. So it had been going f- for like 13 years. And it started, you know, like some of the guys <coughs> I met. Actually, you know, I wasn't the first Grego there. There yeah. was a guy named Greg um, who was there before. And then there was uh, there's a uh, legendary Swiss guy named Thomas Perrin who was also there before I showed up. But um yeah, those guys, you know, they tell great stories of, like, the true early days of the 80s of that resort where there was, like, pet ostriches just roaming the streets and things like this, you know, where it's just, like, truly wild. And the guy named, as you know now, like, all the hotels after different Zodiac signs. It's just kind of a trippy place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so you did the Las Lanias thing. Did, did you do that just one summer? Um, no. So I did it that summer, and then... I I took a year or two off. I went to, um, I started college out on the East coast to decide to do a year at, um, at, uh, CU Boulder. And in my, I've got into this random house at Boulder that was full of like pretty hardcore skiers. And one of my roommates there was on this like pro ski track as a free skier and he was about to head back down, to, or he was to head to Las Lanas after spending a couple seasons in Chamonix. And, uh, you know, I was like, hell, you know, I was there two years ago. It was great. Like, I'm, I want to get back on that train. Yeah. And then, so I started going again in college. Hmm. Um, and those were just like the glory days down there, really. It was, that's where skiing for me really just, you know, just blossomed personally. We were like... 10, 10 or 15 guys living in a basement in the employee housing and we had this just giant resort all to ourselves and it was just like dreamland you know we it was basically like heli quality runs when the snow was good we never crossed a track mm-hmm. and just lived it up you know it's just like this really fun camaraderie of, of really good skiers that you know were just yeah we were living like the ultimate kind of lifestyle down there you know just the super fun social life and night and amazing skiing and nobody around. It was the great culture. It was yeah. Dreamy years. So that, that went for another four or five years. And I think I spent a total of eight, pretty much almost full seasons down there when it was all said and done. Wow. Yep. So, huh. so yeah, that was a big part of my kind of ski upbringing was lost line. Yes. So did you spend your, your whole time, in college, was it at CU Boulder? No, because um, I, I thought you, yeah, weren't you at Colorado College? That's where I, I graduated from, and um, yeah, I did kind of like a little bit of a 
like quarter life crisis tour de force of colleges. I started on the East Coast, um, which was mostly like following sort of the path that had been set by my whatever family and education, and then went to Boulder because I was a skier and that's what I wanted to do. And then ultimately, like kind of the compromise between those two worlds was um, was Colorado College, where I spent the last two and a half years and graduated from. Yeah. So, and interestingly, I mean, CC, a lot of the folks I've worked with in the ski industry since like the whole Sweetgrass crew and Mm -hmm. all those guys, there's a lot of CC people, um, at DPS, our COO now was, uh, my assigned roommate for first semester I was down there. So a lot of good connections and, and that was a, that was an awesome time. You know, we like Pikes Peak is just outside of Colorado Springs and, we would ski, you know, classes ended every, um, every day there at noon. So during the winter I skied every day, you know, and climbed these cool bars on Pikes Peak. And it was like, had this really fun group of friends that was, you know, we were all into it. And yeah, as soon as that lunch bell rang, you know, we'd get a quick bite and just go ski every, every afternoon. So huh. it's good. Not bad. No. What'd you study? Uh, I was a English major in college. Nice. Respectable. We like yeah. those English, and if you, can, if you throw in a little philosophy, we like those too, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, the humanities. Yeah. It's good stuff. It lets you, spans the mind and creates a good capacity for bullshitting. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> when, did you, when did you get into product design? Was that, were you interested in product design kind of like as a college kid, or was it that you were interested in skiing and given that you were interested in skiing you just started thinking very specifically about ski design and what that might be like um how did that go yeah totally it it was the latter you know like i've kind of told people like in the the greater design community like talented designers that work with a lot of products like i probably couldn't design a chair to save my life you Mm -hmm. know it it was like very ski specific and i think my design interest really came from just an incredible passion for the sport itself and like wanting to push my own skiing, you know, to where I wanted it to go and, and the imagination associated with that. So that's really what, what drove it. And I got into it uh, a couple of years after school. Um, you know, I think that, that cross between touring and high performance skiing, uh, you know, that is such a theme today in in the whole ski industry um, is something that I was really into back then. And so my first project was like, okay, how do we use green spring race bindings to tour on? And, you know, started to come up with a, uh, you know, in my mind, I imagined this plate system that was, you know, basically it's pretty akin or closer to like, um, a couple of products that have come out over the last couple of years, but it was sort of an evolution of Trekker and Ski Alp inserts, but actually a plate. Um, I'm spacing the name of the company, but a few years ago they had like, it was MFD or something. Mm-hmm. There was a plate that, that was very similar to what we kind of came up with back then. And then I teamed up with an engineer in Aspen uh, to develop that. We worked on that project, teamed up with a manufacturer, and ultimately it didn't go to market because they decided to <coughs> distribute a uh, uh, another binding out of Europe. But um, 
but that was the beginning. And then from there on, it's not like I was even thinking about skis commercially, but in those Las Lanias years and, and up here, I was started bending rocker into my metal laminate skis and also custom painting them, like never thinking that this is something, you know, we'd want to sell or have a brand around. It's just like what I kind of wanted to be riding on, you know, from a, both a functional standpoint and an aesthetic standpoint. So down the road as you know, I was doing that for a couple of years. I painted like three skis, bent the tip rocker into all of them. And, and then, uh, the whole thing kind of gelled in conjunction with that past binding development experience and and then meeting this uh, Swiss guy, Surreal, down in uh, in Las Lanias, we developed like a really strong skiing partnership. And he had uh, he had a lot of experience as a successful brand manager, mostly in the wine industry, but just really sharp guy. And and like kind of all these ideas started to come together at that point, and that was the impetus for creating a brand so, and designing skis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when <clears throat> so where do you mark the earliest like what year do we say you started because it wasn't it was we had this dp thing right yep. and that was the first db was the db yeah that was surreal Bonnet, the yeah my first partner yep and that was like 2001 we started okay and that was built in a you know based on the scheme partnership and just good times in las lanias yeah and, uh, yeah, it was like a lot of energy there and we decided to, to start that brand. And then that went for mm, two and a half years, three years. We had a manufacturing partner here in the U S that told us they could build carbon skis. It didn't turn out to be the case. So had a lot of production problems there and, um, that disbanded, but we knew that from like a brand perspective, a shaping perspective, a technology perspective that, I mean, just the reception was crazy at the beginning. It was like, it was like a shot in the arm to a lot of course skiers that at that point didn't really have an outlet in terms of manufacturers and brands that really reflected what they were doing and what we were doing. So we saw that market um, feedback and like just how stoked people were on the whole concept. And, and uh, so despite the failure there from a production standpoint, I knew that like we were onto something good and hence DPS and, you know, just immediately basically transitioned from DB and that was 2005 that we started. 2005. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about carbon fiber because now that is nothing to talk about because like carbon everything, right? In the bike industry and the ski industry. But that certainly didn't used to be the case. Right. And I, and carbon is such, you know, so associated with DPS and like the early roots of DPS. I guess what I want to know is, were you, maybe this is simplistic, but were you primarily really excited about this particular material and its applications, potential applications for skiing? Or were you more interested in shapes? Well, it was both, really. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Is that a cop-out or is that true? No, no, it's 100%. It was equal. I mean, we also knew that, like, going in, we just wanted to create new stuff and, like, be, um, you know, really innovative and differentiated from what 
was out there. And, and that existed on two levels, on shapes, for sure, because it was obvious that what was being built didn't reflect the kind of style of scene that we that we were doing. And then secondly, you know, it was like the skis that we were bending rocker into were these double metal laminate skis that weighed like 13 pounds a pair, you know, mm. and we were climbing, climbing peaks, touring on them. You know, it's just crazy. So, so really carbon was a logical, natural step, um, towards creating something that was not only more powerful, but, um, you know, more functional from a, mobility standpoint so both on the downhill you know like we were influenced by surfboards and snowboards and just that quickness and playful edge-to-edge kind of um uh quality that you don't get from a metal big heavy metal ski Mm -hmm. and then you know secondly we wanted to move around and you know jealous of friends just kind of you know carrying around potato chip snowboards and stuff like that and then you know it was just from a bigger context it was you know, we, we looked at all these other industries where it had made such a difference, um, sailing, biking, uh, tennis, whatever, golf and, and skiing, you know, at that point in time, some people had used big manufacturers, used the word carbon, um, before, but it was basically marketing. There wasn't any functional carbon being used in skis at that time. And so, yeah, that was, a nut we decided to crack at that you know in retrospect it was probably pretty stupid because it is a incredibly challenging technology to integrate into skis and do it well and so yeah i mean even though we had all this momentum when we started we really spun our wheels for many years and kind of lost a lot of opportunity because we were so just like single-mindedly set on making carbon work in skis and, uh, yeah, so the first four or five years was, of DPS was just basically like trying to, uh, evolve and scale that technology. Mm-hmm. And whereas, you know, if we had just started with the shaping game, we probably, we would have got going a lot faster. Huh. The flip side of that is that we came out on the other end with this very unique differentiated technology as the shapes got caught up that, you know, I think to this day, I, I think we still kind of are the leaders of. And, and you know, when it comes to pre-prag carbon fiber, you know, as far as I know, I think we're, we're the only ones truly making pre-prag carbon ski, you know, whereas there's a lot of glass and wet layup and stuff in the industry now. And everyone um, markets carbon for sure. But to the extent that we've worked with it and developed it, it's it's kind of a, a different deal. So, Is there an easy way to talk about pre-preg carbon or is it more of a- in a nutshell um you know it's basically like getting uh into your laminate just having this very even um distribution of resin so that the laminate is consistent stronger uh can be lighter than a wet layup um layup or a wet layup ski where you're just basically slathering resin on the ski and and um and distributing it um, you know, through a squeegee and, and just pasting it around where the resin distribution is, is not as even. And consequently, you know, from a, from a true, you know, from a performance standpoint, in theory, you can, it can be heavier and, and not as strong. Mm-hmm. So, and the first skis really were, is it, I mean, is am I right that the 
some kind of proto version of the Lotus 120 and the Lotus 138 were both of those things kind of coming on the scene at the at the origins or was it more 138 to start do I have that right uh so the chronology there is that the 120 the Lotus 120 the precursor to the Lotus 120 was a DB ski called the Tabla Rasa That's which right. we launched in like 02 that was the first ski we came out with and it was swallowtailed it was a 120 underfoot pintail and it had rocker in it and we i you know if you know it was <laughs> origins the, yeah. it was the first ski to like market rocker and it yeah. came out like basically at the same time as the volant spatula which you know was truly rockered but the, you know they the, just the way they talked about it was reverse camber reverse side cut it wasn't rockered per se i mean the idea is the same obviously but just from a marketing yeah. nomenclature or whatever so, so yeah, so that was the tabla. And then as the story goes, like, um, so we built that under DB and then Peter Turner, my partner was working with Shane McConkie to engineer the spatula kind of at, at the same time. Um, spatula came out right after the tabla rasa or, you know, virtually within a couple months of it or something. And then, um, as we transitioned to DPS, um, when, Peter and I joined forces. We basically took the tabla and the spatula and started combining attributes of both skis to spit out both the Lotus 120 and then the Lotus 138, which was kind of like the first rockered ski with side cut incorporated into it. So, um, so yeah, and the the 138 was was came out right at the beginning of DPS. Mm-hmm alongside the Lotus 120. So the Lotus 120 was more like the Tabla Rasa, the spatula, or sorry, the 138 was more kind of spatula-esque slash Tabla Rasa mixed. Um, Yeah, so that was an exciting time. Pretty, like, unconscious totally at the time, you know, but just looking back now on the context of how that all happened and where it sits in ski design, it's... Yeah, it's kind of fun to look back on because, you know, basically rocker and side cut, that combination of those two elements are really what, you know, the key elements of kind of all all mountain and powder skis, all of them today. So at least, yeah, from a commercial standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good. Um, And then another hallmark feature, uh, you know, carbon fiber one, if we're thinking about kind of dps hallmarks um another has been low weight right yeah and so i want to talk about that a little bit because now you know it's 2017 and now it feels like in the last year or two we are just increasingly in this uh it's like an arms race like to see who can can get to zero yeah quicker than any like it's like this ski weighs nothing Totally. Like that's where, like, I expect next year at SIA, yeah. someone's going to have the first zero gram ski out. Yeah, you know, and it, and it feels like that's kind of um, we're we're chasing, you know, we're, we're chasing zero. Yeah, and <clears throat> that's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. So, one, you've already spoken to, you know, back in the day, you guys were touring, and you were backcountry skiing, and you're like, dude, it sucks doing this on really heavy metal laminate skis, right? Like, that just makes a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. But 
Um, I don't know. Talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, because I think what has been interesting then is when DPS started moving into making narrower skis, you guys were still making really lightweight skis, you know, relative to the rest of the industry. And so, uh, was that just a byproduct of the fact that you guys became obsessed with carbon fiber? Does that have to do with the fact that like, look, we just simply liked that specific, uh, performance envelope of these lighter skis and what they allowed you to do. I guess I'm asking, you know, you guys have, you aren't just now turning to the lightweight bandwagon. You kind of started or were a significant part of that. Like that's old news for you. So talk to me about the kind of lightweight component of this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's complicated. I, I think we could talk for a long time about it, but generally in the beginning, you know, we were just, like dead set on the benefits of carbon and, and just the, you know, that playful kind of, you know, be, you know, sense of being able to like throw your skis around to, to get creative element of carbon while still having all that amazing torsional stiffness that comes, that's possible through the material, you know, that can exceed, you know, in some cases a metal laminate race ski. So the combination of those two things was immediately intriguing. You know, like you knew that both both those qualities are are great things to have in a ski. Like I, you know, I'd say in the beginning, especially in the narrower skis, like but they're they're tough things to get right and combine with good ski ability and and um, good biofeedback and damping and all, all these other qualities that are also important for a ski. So we I think we were so set on this like power to weight ratio torsional stiffness idea that, um, yeah, I would say arguably our, our, our first skis, you know, are underwhelming in the narrower waist widths because we, we sort of ignored all these other characteristics that are really important in a ski, you know, the planted damp feeling and, and just like smooth biofeedback characteristics. So, but yeah, you know, it's our mission especially in the last few years has been really about just cultivating those other characteristics and combining them with what we knew from the beginning were the very positive attributes of carbon. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's gone so far as, you know, when you talk about like the weight arms race, when we launched our tour one construction, which is a touring specific construction, like they are light skis and they're class competitive, but we came to a point where we said, Hey, we're not willing to go any lower. Um, just because we're, you know, we're, we're primarily about skiing and like skiing downhill performance. And there comes a point where mass, um, is important and there's a threshold there where you start making a lot of compromise and, and yeah, I mean, we're skiers first performance first. And, you know, despite the technological ability to keep dropping down there, it's just, you know, it's the numbers don't really, um, justify you know they look good on paper and in a press release but they're you know the actual experience of owning the ski you know it's if the ski weighs 1200 grams i mean you're gonna go up fast you're not gonna you're gonna you're gonna have this great experience of lightweight speed but if you go to 800 grams and it just skis horribly on the way down like is that worth the yeah. compromise for some people yes yeah you know, if you wear tight clothes and 
it's about going fast on the up. That's great. That's not what our brand is about. And so, you know, we, we've pulled back, excuse me, the reins on, on that weight savings. You know, we're not interested in that race to the, the weight bottom per se. Mm-hmm. So, so given where things are these days, um, and given this emphasis that we're seeing, like every company playing in that lightweight space, yeah. does this make it more difficult for DPS to stand out, you know, from the crowd? Um, since we are, I mean, you just got done saying, like, we're not trying to like win the weight arms race, but you still do have a lot of skis that are coming in on that. You know, you don't, your guys aren't making like the heaviest skis you know, in the category, like in, in a category. No. Yeah. And by, yeah. And by a long shot, we're not even close to the heaviest. And, and like I said, I think that lightweight is a performance downhill quality that, that if, if it's married with the right other characteristics, that's our design goal because lightweight is a great thing. It's just not when it's taken to its extreme. So, um, like Alchemist, for example, was a huge move for us from our prior carbon construction, Pure 3. And it's um, the goal there was really to tune out a lot of the bad biofeedback and, um, you know, just kind of cultivate the, the good stuff that carbon has while, while yeah, dampening the ski and making it just much smoother and, and more chargy and, and, you know, beneficial to people that are skiing slower and faster you know just a better experience and and to do that we you know we added a 100 grams of weight to pier three and we were okay doing that but when you compare alchemist to even you know good fiberglass builds or double laminate uh, metal laminate skis we're still 30 percent lighter you know and that's so that was okay to add that 100 grams you know like because why the ski is still very light it's still um it's still creative it has a good balance of mass and it can charge in bad snow now um you know you can really push the ski and like push the upper limits of it whereas before i you know i wasn't happy with you know the ski the pure three construction was a bit too reactive and tingy you know it also had this auditory quality that was you know i you know i feel like isn't you want you want kind of a sensation of of comfort and and solidity and in the sound of the ski as it moves over snow and hits things and all that so we addressed all of that in alchemist and um yeah but we were okay to go 100 grams more but if you look at the the greater market we're still super light so yeah yeah. so so and i mean we just i have not skied an alchemist construction ski though uh the end of this month, we are uh, headed to Mount Bachelor, and I'm actually going to be skiing. I guess it's the 190 centimeter Whaler 112 in the Alchemist construction. And as I was telling you earlier, yeah. uh, the very first iteration of the Whaler 112 it was literally the first ski review I ever wrote, and like, uh, unconsciously too, not as a Right. I mean, it was no, just, it was, it was, it was fun. blister wasn't a thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, um, uh, I threw it up on a TGR forum yeah. and, uh, <clears throat> you know, so it's kind of feels like a coming home for me, but, but having just read Paul forwards review 
of the Lotus 124 spoon, um, I mean, he is talking about, uh, and in fact, on our last podcast, Paul and I talked about that ski for about 15 minutes, I think. Right. You should listen. See, you should listen to podcasts more. Right, I'm going to get into you'd, it. You'd be aware of this. <laughs> um, so it does sound like, I mean, Paul, who has skied, I mean, virtually every iteration of literally DPS's carbon fiber skis, I think probably from the beginning, Yeah. Um, you know, you can read his review online, but he's like, this is a very different feel um, than he's felt before. Mm-hmm. So... And I and I always think about this like a hundred grams in a ski to me up or down, that's a big deal, and and I say that without even knowing where the hundred grams came from, right? Right. And so I guess in the case of Alchemist, this Alchemist construction, I don't know. I mean, how much you want to talk about? Like, so what is the difference between you know? In some ways, I'm like if there was just this. Uh, you know, if you could just buy mass at the mass store, right. and it was kind of anything, just throw just, a lead shot or something. Yeah, exactly, lead yeah. shot. You know, that is going to, in my experience, make a significant damp- uh, difference in terms of damping yeah. uh, of a ski. Um, but I mean, how much do you want to say about how different this is from the last iteration of the Pure Three construction? Sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, that really was the project. It was it was like, how do we smooth out a carbon ski? You know, and, and again, like just accentuate all the great qualities, the power, the pop, the power to weight ratio, the torsional stiffness, and then just mute out all the auditory stuff, the, um, the kind of harsh biofeedback you get and make snow, hard snow. So that was the project, and we approached it two ways. One was playing with, different materials, uh, damping materials, you know, and a lot of them began as the usual suspects. A lot of them were very exotic materials that, you know, we're still playing with and a lot of skis helped keep those quiet for the moment. But it was this process where it's not only, you know, it's not only the materials themselves, but where they are placed in the ski, which is of like utmost importance. And that was a huge R&D project is like systematically going through placement of these materials in you know in, in various places in the ski and in relation to cores laminates top sheets base everything edges and and just figuring out where you could get the most bang for your buck like where where do you get the most effect for the least amount of additional weight so that was one part of the project and then the second part of the alchemist project which was refining flex patterns because just just in a flex pattern itself you have you can you can cultivate a lot of smoothness in the ski. And that's something that, you know, in our early years, like we were so obsessed with crazy shapes, crazy, you know, just materials that a lot of the nuance and finer points of the ski really didn't get the attention that they deserved. And in Alchemist, even though Alchemist shapes, the tools are exactly the same um, as the pure three skis that preceded them. Um, the flex patterns are quite different and and that was the other side of this R&D project is like get um, get the flex patterns way more refined and that's it's crazy it's a continual um, continual process you know that makes such a huge difference in how a ski skis and that flex pattern relationship to the side cut is, is 
is crazy and it's the make or break and so alchemist is is this evolutionary you know it's not it's not the end of our path we're still you know as we speak today like we are testing and progressing all sorts of crazy stuff but it is a significant difference from the pure th- skis that preceded it and i think like generally the feedback from even people who haven't skied them back to back but skied pier threes the season prior almost unanimously is the feedback is wow these are super different so um yeah i think paul's feedback is pretty much in line with what we hear from dealers magazine testers media customers it's just like it's a substantial difference in the field of ski through those two paths dampening elements and flex pattern this is the topic that I've been most wanting to talk to you about. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we started, I, I mentioned this before we started recording, and we did our best to, like, not have this conversation yet. Yeah, we punted it, so I'm, I'm going to get fried here. No, no. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, anybody who's read um, some of my reviews or a bunch of my reviews knows that a, a thing I say a lot is... Um, uh, I often uh, I, the the uh, the nicest way to put it is I think a little bit of tip taper goes a very long way, yeah. and so I and I often find myself um, questioning like heavily tapered skis. And another thing I say in a lot of reviews is like the lighter that you're going with a ski, um, the less reason. I think the less rationale there is to go heavy to go with a heavily tapered tip shape, like the ski's already light. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about a you know um, an obnoxious swing weight or a cumbersome swing weight. Mm-hmm. And you know DPS has historically had a whole lot of tip taper on a number of uh, of your skis. So what I wanted to do was let a ski designer kind of come back to me and say, well, look, here's what you're missing or, you know, you're overlooking or, or here's where my position on some of this is maybe a bit too simplistic. Mm-hmm. Um, this is your moment. All right. Yeah. Well, I, this is a, it's a complicated and nuanced topic. And, you know, as we talked about before we started this podcast was, you know, I basically agree with you and I've come around a lot over the last few years in terms of how tip taper is employed in ski design, you know? And I think in the beginning it was, it was done. Um, let's see, there was great success with it in especially deep powder skis. Yep. And there's a reason for that. I mean, like, yep. you know, you look back to 138s, 120s, yeah. spoons, all, all these, and even 112s, like, there's a reason why that kind of design works super well in deep snow. And, and basically it just allows so much more, it works in conjunction with deep rocker, which, you know, allows the ski to basically pivot at the top of the turn and, and set, you know, all these kind of cool different turn shapes that you, you basically get stuck in with a, with a ski that has side cut that runs much farther up into the tip. So once you're planing and you're skiing higher up in the snow, taper makes tip taper specifically in rocker in conjunction makes a lot of sense because you you're skiing you're pivoting the ski more from your foot and you're not asking 
to drive <coughs> and put pressure into that tip, right? The same way you would in, in hard snow. So when we started with it, like, you know, a ski like the 138 to this day, and, you know, and I'll revise, I'll say right now, personally, I think the, the place for heavy tip taper exists on 130 and up. Yep. Um, totally for, agree. For, for a good skier. Um, totally agree. For worse skiers or nuance for a different type of skier, for example, a lighter woman, um, I think there's a, definitely a place for it under 130. But if you're a, like a strong, heavy, hard-charging skier, for me, and now it's kind of in that 130 zone. And that's the reason being because you can plane with those waist widths and you get flotation from under your foot. So at that point, because of the rocker built in those skis, you can still drive the shovel and get the lift you need in front of your foot, um, you know, without having that width being levered out so far from your foot. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I agree with you. I think when we started like a shape, like the Whaler 99, that was okay. Like we had all this great success with the Whaler 112, which if you're not as good at skier, um, it's sort of like cheating a little bit because you don't have to deal with, uh, you know, with this edge sitting way out from your foot. So you're able to pivot the ski a lot easier. And if you're skiing slower in powder, it all of a sudden makes powder skiing way easier. So you're as a, well, let's, I don't know, intermediate skier or whatever, not like a super charger. You, um, you can turn a lot easier with having that big, uh, tip taper. Same thing with tail rocker. So that's a good thing. And we saw like good market response from that, not from core chargers, but from that, like, you know, aspiring powder skier zone. Like it changed a lot of people's whole skiing world because now they could ski pow. Um, and then, so like, just kind of naively we're like, oh yeah, let's, let's take that same concept and move it down the waist with into like 99, for example, in retrospect, like, I don't think it's appropriate there because you can't drive your tip. You can't get that feedback from the side cut far enough up into the ski to really control the ski the way you want to, especially in mixed snow. Now, the exception, like when I said at the beginning, my, my, the exception is the nuances. For example, like, you know, if you're a lighter woman who's shorter and all of a sudden 99 millimeters is sufficient as your powder ski, you know, that's where it still makes sense. Yeah. But if you're, you know, your height and weight and your ability, you're going to want that side cut to draw farther up at 99. So I'm, I'm totally with you, um, in that. And I've learned a lot myself over the last few years in terms of how, you know, in the future we'll kind of employ those designs. But if you look at the way we're shaping our newer skis, especially, excuse me, at 106 and down, yeah, you'll notice that the side cut runs past the contact point and runs up past, um, the length of the rocker. And why? Same reason. So you can you can feel that shovel out yeah. in front of you and engage the whole ski and feel the whole ski flexing in mixed snow and even in powder for those lower waist widths. But yeah, so I'm with you, man. Wow, this is I. <laughs> this is quite the moment. I uh, I thought I was gonna I thought I was gonna hear this amazing counter argument. So uh, I. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know what to (laughs) I'm trying not to gloat. No, Uh, that's, that's super interesting. And I think, I mean, like, I think it's, um, I think it's super cool. um, One, to hear you be so candid about it. And two, to just admit, like, 
we are all learning in life, like in whatever we are doing. Um, the very first ski review I wrote was fucking terrible. You know, like I hadn't done it before. And sure. I think we've right. gotten more nuanced and learned a lot of things over the last six and a half years. And I think to hear you coming around on some of this is really interesting to me. And, and honestly, I was ready to hear you say like, this is what you're missing, you know, or, um, so, um, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, we're always learning. I mean, this is like, like you said, it's a big path, you know, and, and that's what makes it exciting. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, we say we're on this search for the perfect ski and that's, you know, it's this moving target out on the horizon and hopefully they just keep getting better and better and better, but there's always something to tweak and prove and, and, and make better. And yeah, I mean, I, in terms of tip taper, totally. But I, I still, again, I, you know, I still think there's a place for yep. it for sure. And it's in the big skis. It's in the yes. narrow skis for a certain skier. But if you're charger, then yeah, I agree. Leave it, leave it on the big stuff. And I guess my only thing too, the only other caveat, cause like not everybody wants to charge this, like maybe they can, and that's not the style they want. So this isn't about like, good skiers don't like tip taper. Like I have no interest in framing the conversation that way, Yeah. but a certain style of skiing. And I, and I think for me, even that person who uh, enjoys skiing at a more moderate speed, making more turns that has nothing to do about if you're a good skier or a bad skier, it's like, what do you like to do? Right. Right. And I think even there, that's my other thing is just still, the lighter that ski is getting, I think that it helps performance because we're, as we're reviewing more and more really lightweight touring skis. Yeah. Um, and I said this in my review of the, this head core one Oh five personally, like that ski, it's 189 centimeters long. Mm-hmm. So it's already a long ski. So probably not something that an intermediate skier is going to be reaching for even just off the length. Right. And it's really stiff. So to me, the question, and it's a good ski, but I kind of wonder, wouldn't this be even better mm-hmm. if they had put a bit less tip taper on it? Push that surface area out into the extremity of the tip. Let me get on that tip right. more. And in chop, you know, in variable snow, won't that to me it feels like less tip taper actually in chop it used to be and sometimes people still talk about this that in chop more tip taper keeps the ski from deflection i've never found that to be true yeah that's i mean that's see that's that's a complicated one and it really varies i think per person like i i actually yeah it totally depends on the type of ski and the type of skier um I'll just give you an example. Like yeah. Pierce Solomon is one of our uh, koalas. Like yeah. Really great skier with incredible balance and technique and a strong race technical background. And, you know, he, when we talk about ski design, he is all about taper. Like he doesn't want that side cut to go anywhere near the tip. He's mm-hmm. like, I ski on a ski right in front of my foot. And then, you know, he's also pretty uh, freestyle oriented too. Yeah. So he wants, he wants to be able to like get the thing sideways whenever he wants. And both, you know, tail rocker and tip taper and tip rocker are the qualities that really allow you to do that. So, um, yeah, it depends. And 
there's so many other elements that work in conjunction with just that one design quality. You know, it's like what the flex pattern is like in relation to a ski that has a further side cut extension or more tip taper. Like that will specific to chop, for example, that flex pattern will have a huge effect on on the quality of that ski. You know, based on you know the two different tip designs. So as will weight. Yeah. And you know, we, weight's never been our issue. We're not like creating that, that design element, um, to save, to save weight or swing weight, which is a common thing you see in the industry is like people are trying to like hollow out their tips and tails. We actually did the opposite a few years ago. We were adding perimeter weight, but just because our construction is so inherently lighter. And this goes back to what we were talking about before is like, you know, we're already starting from a very light place. Well, we're we're doing the opposite project. We're like mm-hmm. trying to make the skis ski better, you know, through strategically placed mass or or damping elements. So, um, you know, that deflection up front isn't really uh, for us associated with the tip shape, but more the inherent like mass of the ski itself. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people. Uh, just last quick thing on this. You know, I get so many comments like. Oh, I went out on 138s. I thought, like, I wouldn't be able to ski those in bounds or in crud. And, and like, I mean, that's about as tapered yeah. a tip shape as you yeah, get. Totally. And a lot of people just, you know, have a blast just charging through. It's an amazing crud ski. Yeah, so there you go. There's one that... But it's 138 underfoot. Yep. But it's got huge tip tapers. Yep. So you can't, you know, isolate these you know it's, it's not just the tip taper that's yeah. creating that but that's what i've all, that's been my take on this which the yeah. simple kind of line is tip taper makes more sense the wider that ski is getting 100 percent. i'm with you yeah i totally agree and i've come around yeah like we've you know beating a dead horse at this point mm-hmm. but yeah it makes 100 it makes great sense as soon as you got that flotation through rocker and waist width underfoot when you're planing it's an amazing thing because yeah. you can flip these things around and you can still, you have enough width in front of your foot that when you push into the ski, you're getting that, uh, that's uh, that reactive sense in front of your foot that you otherwise wouldn't get in a narrower ski with a lot of either tip rocker or tip taper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we're going to wrap up here soon, but I wanted to, and talking a little bit about um, the DPS boot. Oh, yeah, the boot. Das boot. Das boot. Um, this is something maybe some people have heard a little bit about it. Um, other people have not. Um, talk to us a little bit about what is this boot project? Yeah, boot project. So... That's it's been going on for a couple of years, and it, uh, it's not like a top secret thing or anything. What we're actually doing is we're keeping under wraps, you know, because I it is pretty out there. It's pretty. Uh, it's a huge departure from ski boots as we know know them. Um, but a little bit of the backstory is, you know, I've struggled with boots my entire life, and um, you know, I have these feet that not only just from a fit perspective, but I just got the sense that that there's something functionally in the biomechanics of a boot that just wasn't interacting well with, with my body and the way I skied. And, and um, yeah, just to give you an example, you know, it's like I, I feel like I've always been able to ski soft snow and powder. They're 
pretty high level and, you know, and really like cultivate the way I wanted to ski in those conditions. But when it came to like rock hard ice, um, you know, I've, I've always marveled at how, you know, like high end racers and stuff had this like ability to just have incredible edge grip and hold an edge through a carve on ice, which is something I've, yeah, I've, yeah, I can do it to a certain level, but not like, you know, not to the point where I, I would ever be incredibly competitive on a, on a race course, you know? And I was like trying to figure out why that was because in deep snow, it's like I could ski with world cup racers or whoever, and just really, you know, ski well in, in those scenarios. But then, yeah, it's just weird. Like, why is that not happening? And so it, that combined with just this discomfort and, um, you know, just sense that something was wrong in traditional plastic boots kind of led us on this, um, yeah, just this like exploratory path to understand biomechanically what's going on and, and design a boot that, that addressed those issues and tried to overcome them. Really what we're going for is, is, um, you know, the, that same cool sensation that you have when you're riding a surfboard or a longboard skateboard, um, or even a mountain bike in some respects where you just feel very connected to the ground and to the board you're riding. And on skis, you don't really feel that you're, um, most of us in the modern day, we ski from the cuffs of our boots. You know, we're like manipulating the ski through the cuff, not through our feet. And that's kind of a disconnected, weird feeling. And, and it's not as pure as skiing should feel. So we started this project with that kind of stuff in mind um, I like doing Tai Chi and, you know, when you're barefoot on a, on a hard surface and you just feel all those bones and muscles and ligaments and your foot move, it just feels natural, kind of like the surfboard. It's like, why can't that exist in skiing? And, uh, so that, that's how we started. And through that path, um, came across some really interesting characters, uh, you know, who have asked the same question over decades and, you know, haven't had their ideas or knowledge really commercialized in a boot. Um, and, and just, it's been this awesome learning experience and we've prototyped a bunch of boots over the last couple of years. And I can say that, you know, the experiences that I've felt through these boots are nothing short of phenomenal. They actually allow you to, to connect again, like to that hard snow sensation, like where, you know, I can ski now on, on prototype boots, hard, rock hard icy runs and feel you know just feel absolutely perfect edge grip and the perfect sense of connection all the way down the length of the ski edge which is something i've never felt before in my life and that's just by freeing up the foot you know to work the way it naturally um the way it naturally should work so that's been our project it's incredibly complicated and hard and and uh you know, we're putting together these boots that people just look at the prototypes and, you know, it doesn't even look like a ski boot. It's just these crazy, you know, ar architecture and stuff. And, and yeah, I'm hoping that by next year we, you know, we can start really showing people what we've been doing and, and oh. put something together that, that is scalable and, you know, that, uh, yeah, go to market. So, wow. Yeah. I'm not smart enough or it's too late for me to wrap my head around all of that, but I mean, it sounds... I'm being vague, totally. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but I think appropriately vague, but I I mean, that, that all sounds like totally game-changing. 
right? I mean, everything that we are going for currently, you know, and that I am going for in a boot is we, we all talk about it to be absolutely locked in mm-hmm. zero play, zero movement, yeah. you know, um, and you are describing sort of the opposite of that. Yeah. Like kind of literally the opposite. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's the thing. I mean, it's, it's a new paradigm and that we're pursuing and, I mean, if, yeah, try to, you know, like whatever, hit a baseball, hit a golf club, you know, swing a tennis racket, whatever you do any other sport and watch how your ankles and feet articulate. So how, how can we have great balance when we're basically like thrown in a cast, you know, which is what a ski boot is. So that's the fundamental question we're trying to address. And I can tell you, it looks nice on the other side when you get out of the cast and start getting athletic and like being able to really torque your body and, and use it in a way that, that, that it naturally wants to move. So I cannot wait to see what you come up with. I do think it's, I do think it's pretty remarkable. We started this conversation talking about this, you know, tabula rasa and soon to be a Lotus one thirty eight which I still think is an absolutely kind of game-changing powder ski. And if anybody hasn't skied that thing, uh, you should. Um, And we're now talking about a boot, and we'll see what comes of it, but what you're talking about here sounds um, no less sort of revolutionary. So it's a pretty remarkable arc, I would say. I, yeah, I mean, we'll see big dreams and, you know, whether it can really materialize, um, you know, from the headspace into something, um, tangible that, that really works is remains to be seen. But I mean, yeah, I'm as excited as anyone personally just to yeah, ski on something like that. So hopefully it works and we can all enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Well, we will, we will be uh paying attention close attention and uh wish you well with it so cool thanks man uh thanks for the conversation this has been fun thank you john good stuff that's it for this edition of the blister podcast many thanks to stefan for the conversation and to our strikingly handsome audio engineer justin bob who i am now going to have to simply start making stuff up about because i think this might actually be the be the longest that he and i have ever gone without hanging out so here goes Did you know that Justin took a year off from high school to work for a traveling carnival? While that may or may not be true, if you ever do meet Justin, be sure to ask him about his story about the golf carts in high school. That one is definitely true. Till next time, check out what we're up to on blisterreview.com. Put it on your calendar to meet us out at Mount Bachelor at the end of the month. Leave us some nice feedback on iTunes if you like what you're hearing. And we will catch you next time on the Blister Podcast.